0: The Tower of Babel, the promise to Abraham, the sons Ishmael and Isaac, the birth of covenants. Every one of these events is an announcement, a declaration of who God is and how he treats his people. As the word of God has stood the test of time, these records are still a revelation. Well, I'm glad you guys all made it. Last night was, uh, you know, keeping score with the weather and uh, it was nice to be able to make a decision to say, we're a full go, and uh, we'll trust that the Lord brings who are to be here today and recognize that some who are normally here with us are not able to venture out today and are watching uh, online, and you'll, you'll miss the spirit that's been in the room today uh, that's, that's here. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Genesis. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 18 today. And uh, beginning with uh, an interesting passage. And so, if you're new, my name is Tony. Uh, I'm pastor here at LAFC. I want to give a little context to what is going on in uh, this sermon series that we are, we are currently a part of. Uh, so... If you are aware, you know, we just spent time in Christmas, which is a celebration of the coming of Jesus Christ uh, as a child. And then he came by virgin birth, which then meant that he didn't have uh, the seed of sin born in him. So he was born without sin, was able to live without sin, to live a life that uh, was meant to be lived by all of us, but was failed by us. uh, And and ultimately that failure began in the garden. And then we know that here in a few weeks, uh, believe it or not, uh, at the end of March, we'll celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that resurrection is after the scourging that happened with the cross. And, And so if that's all you know about Christianity, then you have to be thinking, why? Why all of that and why that story? Why did it have to be that way? It seems a, a bit uh, odd that, uh, that God would say to his son, I want you to become a child and then I want you to live this life on this earth and become one of the created and I want you to die this most horrific death and then come to life. It, if you don't have Genesis, then none of that makes sense. It just doesn't make sense. You have to understand why God created man the way he created us, what God's plan for mankind is, and then to understand the heart of God that would lead to such uh, decisions that we now know uh, through the, the story of Jesus Christ. And so we're going through Genesis with the intent to try to understand the context of the current gospel that we are living under, that we get to understand why Jesus came and he died on a cross, resurrected on the third day, that we could have hope for life Eternal. These things we can understand through the lens of our origins and our beginnings. And already in the study of Genesis, uh, we what we've had revealed about God is His heart for people, His character, His holiness and justice, His compassion, and that His word stands. We've already discovered that in the first uh, 12 chapters of Genesis. And now we're getting into the part of Genesis where it's big chunks of story and narrative. True story that, again, helps us understand a little bit more. But what you're going to see in this section of Genesis is that it's going to reveal how God deals directly with mankind. And how man's sin, uh, he handles that, how he handles uh, successes and failures and rejection, doubts and favor for those who actually are. Faithful. And so that's what we have to look forward to uh, in the next few weeks between now and Easter as we go through the latter parts of Genesis. And so we're going to go into Genesis chapter 18. And the context for this is we, as we have learned that God gave his promise uh, to Isaac, the son of Abraham, and not Ishmael, the son of Abraham, but through Hagar. That God was saying, no, I'm going to make my promises. This fulfillment of this redemptive narrative is going to come through Isaac. And so we get that in chapter 17. And that message is delivered by three visitors from heaven. And so there's two angels. And what we're all pretty confident about in studying this, uh, the third member being a theophany or Christ himself, God himself coming and presenting himself directly with uh, a human being. And so that's, there's several theophanies in the Old Testament. This would be likely one of them. And so with that being said, these three visitors bring word that that the story of the redemption story is going to happen through Isaac. Now they've shared that message, they're ready to leave, and they're on the way out the door, and Abraham, like a good host, is walking them out. And that's where we pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 18. So let's begin. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them, and to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. That's part of the gospel. All nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And so, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right. And just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom and Abraham, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord responded and said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, God said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then Abraham said again, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? God responded, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said again, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? God responded, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then Abraham said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? God responded, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. What in the world? <laughs> if you have not paid much attention to this text before in your life, you might be thinking, wait a second, I thought God knows everything, always, and that God is unchanging and his mind doesn't change, and, and this seems to be different than the God that I thought I knew. Or maybe you didn't have any projections upon God, and you're thinking, oh, so we can negotiate with God. Well, let's uh, kind of walk down a biblical path and see if this holds up throughout other texts. Perhaps we should consider Exodus chapter 32. You don't have to turn there, but let me just give you the context. In Exodus, Exodus 32, the nation of Israel has just left Egypt. They came up to the Red Sea. The Red Sea becomes a huge barrier. They discover that Egypt is close behind with their armies and they're about to be annihilated And they look at this Red Sea and they say to Moses, did you and and God lead us out here into the desert to die? Only to find that God was gonna do something that they did not expect. He was going to split that sea wide open and they were gonna walk across it on, on dry land. And then God kept Egypt from being able to cross until the whole nation was was on the other side. And then once they were on the other side, then they got to watch God bring the water back in over the people, over the nation of of Egypt. And the entire army was annihilated. They were truly amazed by the power of God and and that Moses was truly leading uh, them as God had appointed. So they go now out into this desert And then Moses says, I need to get some more instruction from God. So he goes up onto this mountain to get instruction from God. And while they were waiting, somehow they had in their mind what the appropriate amount of time was for Moses to be gone. And he didn't return in the timely fashion that they were hoping for. So they became impatient and they panicked. So they took All the gold, not all the gold, but much of the gold they had taken from Egypt, which by the way, God said, I'm gonna have you plunder the Egyptians. And that happened. So they plundered the Egyptians. They have all this gold. They took some of that gold. They melted it, made a calf, and then gave it credit for getting them across the Red Sea. That's really strange. It's very strange. But let me remind you, We do the same thing, often. Things happen around us, we tend to credit ourselves as if we were able to make all that happen. Forgoing the idea that maybe God is actually still active around us today. They too were crediting their own hands by acknowledging an idol that they had made with their own hands. And so when Moses, who, by the way, Moses had a reputation of being prone to anger and having outbursts, he had a short fuse. And so when he shows up from off that mountain and he sees this golden calf and them crediting it, Moses was angry, he broke the tablets and you know he was furious and likely feeling how could they not trust me? But God speaks in this moment and says, he's so angry, he's going to annihilate them and start over with Moses. Okay, so that's what happens in chapter 32. Moses then responds with, God, you can't do this. So Moses goes from being angry to being priest advocate, where he begins to advocate for the nation of Israel and says to God, God, remember your covenants. Remember your promises, and don't do this because that will also harm your reputation with Egypt. They will see that you have also forsaken Israel and Egypt and therefore making them similar. So the appeal seemingly moves God's heart towards something different, and God relents. The similar thing happens in Numbers chapter 14. This is now a little bit later as they've been traversing closer towards the promised land and returning to the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're, and they're going that direction and Moses does what he should do. He sends spies ahead. And we experience what is Spygate 1.0. Come on now. Spygate 1.0. We know about Spygate now. Well, this same thing happened. Spies were sent... But in this case, two different stories come back. Ten of them looked at the land through the eyes of mankind and said, what can we do? And they looked at the land and said, these nations, there's many of them. They're bigger than us. They're more equipped than us. They have more resources than us. We can't win. Two of them went in knowing that God said it's ours. It comes to us and we're going to win. So God will figure all that out. So let's look at what our opportunities are. And they started looking. This land can grow lots of food. It's self-sustaining. We'll do very well there. We will be able to live off this land. So they come back with that. Unfortunately, the nation of Israel listened to the ten. And they began to think through the eyes of mankind and realize like we can't do it. And that was accurate. But they weren't looking at it that but God can. And so God was furious because they had more of a lens. Even after all that God had done to get them out of Egypt, that their lens was still about, it's us. It's about what we can do. And God was furious. And he again says, I'm gonna annihilate these people. And again, Moses pleads with them and says, remember your covenants, remember your promises, and don't ruin your reputation with with Egypt. So God relents. However, he makes them stay until that generation's gone. So in essence, he does do what he says he's gonna do, but he just waits till that, they age out, and then he takes the next generation in that will trust him. So did God, again, seemingly change course? How about 2 Kings chapter 20, a story about one of the righteous kings of, Egypt, of, of Judah? Now, if you know anything about the story in the book of Kings, you'll know that it always begins when talking about a king, that they did evil what was in the eyes of the Lord, or they did what was righteous in the eyes of the Lord. In this situation, there were, it was about four to one, evil kings versus godly righteous kings for Israel. And in this case, Hezekiah was one of the righteous ones for Judah. And so, this moment happens at the end of his, his tenure where he, he is told by God, he's actually given a gift. He is told to him, you're gonna be getting sick and you're going to die. So get your house in order. You can prepare and end on a high note. You can literally plan this out. The rest of us don't know when we're gonna die. And so we kind of have to plan in such a way that, that we could die today. We could die tomorrow. We could die 10 years from now. In this case, If you knew you're going to die imminently and you're about to get sick and that's going to end your life, he's saying, you know, get ready. Get everything ready and then you can give blessing on your way out the door. Hezekiah doesn't receive it that way. In fact, he panics and says and pleads with God through prayer, God, I don't want to die. I want to stay. His passionate pleas reach the Lord and the Lord says, okay, I'll give you 15 more years. So he still is identifying the length and time. And so you would think that with 15 more years, you would think Hezekiah would then plan out. Now is the end is a little later. that you'd plan out, how can I use these 15 years in a way that will please God that he's just given me those 15 years? What you're gonna discover is that in those 15 years, Hezekiah fathered another child. That child's name was Manasseh. Manasseh ends up being the most wicked of all the kings. And then on top of that, Hezekiah's end of his tenure and reign was pride and arrogance. So much so that when Babylon sent emissaries to other nations to see what it is that they might wanna conquer as they were growing in strength, that when they showed up to Jerusalem, Hezekiah in his arrogance and pride shows them all the treasures and storehouses of the palace and of the temple. This angered God and we know the story if you know your scriptures that eventually Babylon would come and conquer Israel taking those treasures with them and the people being in slavery for a generation. Again, seems as though God Changed his mind. Hezekiah pleads for more time. God says, okay, I'll give you 15 more. What's going on here? Is God one that he would change his mind? All right, so two of the stories I gave you were by Moses directly. And three of the stories were penned by him. Hezekiah came through a later writer. But you you get this, that it's like, Moses understands that there's an interaction between mankind and God that can have some interesting dilemmas as part of it. And that same writer, Moses, writes in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, this statement. And it was a statement that God gives Balaam, a prophet, to tell Balak, a leader, in regards to whether or not he was going to curse a people. And this is what God said. God is not human that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God speaking. He is not one like a human being that he would change his mind and that he would lie. Like a human being would. So, if that is true, what has just happened when Abraham goes to God and starts negotiating the number from 50 to 45 to to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10? What is happening when Moses seemingly twice moves God away from annihilation and starting over with Moses as the leader? What is happening when Hezekiah negotiates a seemingly an additional 15 years of life? How do we understand God then if God says, I am not human, that I should lie or change my mind? Then he says, do I not speak and not act? So therefore, my words are intact. Do I not promise and not fulfill? So everything I say is going to come to fruition. So how do you look at this and make sense of it? Well, let's draw upon some key things stated throughout Scripture about God that we need to borrow from in this context because there are many attributes of God that are stated throughout Scripture. And those attributes are spoken of in multiple texts. We don't have time for that, but let me give three of the attributes that I think we need to consider in regards to this question about God and the negotiation or the changing of mind. First of all, in these biblical attributes, God is omniscient. There is no beginning or end to his knowledge. Okay? God is omniscient. He knows everything. There is no beginning of that knowledge, and there is no place where that knowledge ceases to exist. All right? So that's really important to understand. That means that everything that has ever happened on the face of this earth God already knew and has always known. And there was no beginning to knowing that. Therefore, there are no surprises to God. There are no revelations to God. God is not surprised. God does not all of a sudden experience some kind of revelation. So therefore, we have to consider that. Because it says in Psalm 139, that when one of the verses that talk about this omniscience says... There is his thought, our thoughts are known by him from afar, and the things we say, he knows them before we've ever said them. All right, so there's this knowledge that that is ongoing and is beyond us, and right there is mystery for you and I, because for you and I, we're stuck as finite beings. Everything has a beginning, and everything has an end. And so, to conceive something that there is no beginning to something and there's no end to something, our minds cannot come around. So, I'm just acknowledging there's mystery there that you and I cannot fully comprehend. But it is biblically true God has always known what he knows, and he will always know it. Secondly, in regards to attributes that's really important to uh, interject into this, these texts and these questions we're asking now, and that is this, his plans do not change, all right? Now, that comes directly out of Psalm 33, verse 11. His plans stand forever. There's no plan B, there's no plan C, no plan D. His plans that he knows from the beginning of time and beyond, no beginning to his knowledge of those plans, have stood forever. They are eternal. Okay, so he's omniscient. There's no beginning to his knowledge. And his plans, in light of that knowledge, don't change. They are established, steadfast. Thirdly, he is immutable. Immutable. He doesn't mutate. He does not change. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, I do not change. God speaking, I do not change. Numbers 23, verse 19, again, he is not human that he should lie and, or a human being that he would change his mind. So, This idea of plans not changing and his character, who he is, does not change, are consistent throughout scripture. In fact, when Jesus, who's part of the triune God, one with God, it says about him that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All right, so he is omniscient. There's no beginning or end to his knowledge. His plans don't change. He is immutable. He doesn't mutate. He himself as a being does not change. How do we, again, make sense of such texts? How do we even make sense of God? A.W. Tozer, fantastic theologian said this in regards to the idea of the immutability of God. In other words, that God cannot mutate into something different or or mutate and change at all. Tozer says this, to change means one has gone from better to worse or worse to better or immature to mature or from one order of being to another. So for somebody to change, you have to say that they need improvement or there is something that needs to become better as if God was lacking something and it needs to improve upon it or that there was something that God did not know and therefore surprise new information that he has to pivot and adjust or that somehow... God as God used to be is now God different now. Some have divided so harshly the Old Testament from the New Testament or from the writing of scripture days to now the, the God that we read in scripture and his holiness, his justice, and his morality is somehow different today. So therefore, the things he calls sin, sin, and those are the things that he calls holy, holy are now somehow substantively different today. And what somebody has done in order to say such things has established that God somehow substantively is different, improved upon. Better, as if God was lacking anything. So you can go into this text and you can begin to see how Golden Calf experienced the spy report and Hezekiah's request in the Sodom and Gomorrah moment. And you look and say, okay, so if God has always known that these things were gonna happen and his plans of how he was gonna respond to it was unchanging and it was always going to be, then this exchange between him and and Abraham, between him and Moses, and between him and Hezekiah, really causes us to say, then what is really going on? So perhaps there's something that we need to learn from this and each of these that we can say is necessary for today. Because when I look at this, if God is unchanging and God is all-knowing, and his plans are steadfast, then the question that I am left with that's probably most significant for you and I today is, then why even pray? Do I have your attention now? Yes, you <laughs> if God is an all-knowing God, that there is no surprises, that it's always been known what's happening, and that God's plans are already established, and he substantively has not changed, and he doesn't change his mind, then why even pray? I believe there are three reasons for it. And this is all drawn from scripture. The first one is this, that when you watch the people, so when you look at Abraham, and you look at Moses, and you look at Hezekiah, they're all having conversations with God. Effectively, prayer. Because prayer, by definition, is communication between God and man. So they're praying. And, And in this prayer, in each of these stories, you see something taking place between the man, and so is Abraham, Moses, and Hezekiah. You see something happen where then God, in his response, creates something. And that is this, that when we go to God and we pray, it is a journey of aligning our hearts to his heart and our thoughts to his thinking. When we pray, it's an alignment process that's going on between us and God to his heart and to his thinking so that our hearts and our thinking is aligned to his Consider what it says in, in when Paul talks to the church. In Ephesians chapter six, verse 18 to 20, he says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions. Okay, so knowing all this, knowing that God's an unchanging God, that God knows everything, that his plans are already established. Paul tells them, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains. And pray that I also may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Doesn't sound like a man that says, like, God's going to turn his ears off. That says, you know, it's already established, it's already done. No, there's some kind of engagement going on that Paul recognizes that, no, God is still invested into what is going on among mankind and mankind is being called and beckoned to join him in praying and then praying very specifically for fearlessness and effectiveness as they advance the gospel. Think about this. If they don't pray, if they don't pray, Would they have fearlessness? Would they experience the effectivity of the gospel? No, because if they're not praying, who are they depending upon? Themselves. Which was the very thing that offended God in the the desert, is that they thought when they were looking at what was needing to be accomplished to take back the land, they looked at it through a human lens saying, we can't do this. They saw other things, ah, we could do that, but we can't do this. And God's like, oh, you're not not getting it. You need to rely upon me. You need to engage me. And that's what the church is being told to do. We're to pray in the spirit. We're given. When we pray to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're given the Holy Spirit, not just so that we can be marked as God's child, but so that we would know how to live and experience what God wants to, to do in and through you here while on this earth. So we're told, pray for each other, pray in the Spirit on all kinds of occasions, and that pray then for effectivity and fearlessness. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul goes on to talk about prayer in this way: he says, Rejoice always, pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So God's will is that we would pray continually and pray often and pray in the spirit because there is work he wants to do in you and there is work that God wants to do through you. I love this quote from a blogger named Gene Whelan. I don't know much about her, but, but she made this comment in response to this question about why praying. Throughout scripture, we see God ask questions and bring matters up to individuals for the purpose of working out his will, not because he needs help or more information. God presents situations to his people to give them the opportunity to line their hearts up with his heart, not the other way around. Does God need our help? No. no. But does God wanna use his people to accomplish great work in other people's lives? Yes. And he wants to do that through you and he's gonna give you the power to do that. And the way that goes about is when we communicate with him, we align our hearts with him, we become dependent upon him and he empowers us then to do a great work in, into his glory. So when we pray, the number two thing about why pray, when we pray, we get to participate in and see what God is doing around us, in us, and through us. Psalm 34, verse 17 says, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears the righteous and he delivers them from all their troubles. Sometimes we get delivered from troubles and we, all, and we look because we, we haven't prayed and we think, ah, got out of that one, not realizing God got you out of that one? Or God's accomplishing those things in your life? Or as God does sometimes, because you didn't pray, he withholds. But all of that is already pre-known by God. He gets it, he understands it, and he's got a plan for your life to teach you through this. But when we participate in prayer, we begin to see what God is doing around us, in us and through us if you fail to pray you are missing out on God's work that is going on right before your eyes but you're blind to it prayer opens our lenses because we become dependent upon him and when we're praying regularly and we're praying in the spirit then his spirit's resonating in us and his spirit points and says look what I'm doing over here 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 and you're gonna be like oh my goodness look what God is doing And then as you're praying in the spirit, God gives you then your role in it because he's changing you as your heart's becoming aligned to his and his thinking is becoming your thoughts. As Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, that as we become renewed every day in our mind, then we'll be able to attest and approve what his will is. So his will is for us to pray. His will is for us to pray and engage him about everything and to continually pray. And then as our hearts become aligned with him, then we can actually discern his will of what's going on around us and in us and that what his will is for through us to do his work. Lastly, why pray? It's because I believe it's that he wants to do his powerful work on this earth through you. His plan from the beginning was not to just do his work from some kind of uh, unseeable force. His desire was to do his work to changing lives and doing miraculous things and powerful things through a visible church among other people. Because let me tell you, when your life gets changed and God does some amazing things in you, people are looking at you and just saying, well, that clearly, something else is going on in their life because that's not who they used to be. That's evidence of a God at work, and that's how God wants to change one person at a time is that through the change he's done in the church and the power evidence in the church, he will continue his work here on this earth. A plan that he's had from the beginning, a plan that he's always known. Consider James chapter 5 verse 16 when it says this, "Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed." Cuz the prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much or is powerful and effective. Man, so when somebody who is righteous, that is going to God and praying regularly to God there is a powerful, effective uh, engagement between God and man that, that you then get to see what it accomplishes. And that's what you see in the stories in, in Abraham and Moses and Hezekiah as these were righteous men that God was engaging directly and powerful things happened. This is what the church is meant for. And this is what Paul was saying about prayer to the church of Ephesus. He says, I pray, verse 18 of chapter one of of Ephesians. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And, is in, and again, he's praying that you, they may know and be enlightened to this as well. Be enlightened that is incomparably great power for you who believe. And that power is the same power that he used to exert when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father. My goodness, people, when we don't pray, that's what you miss out on. God desires to keep transforming you, not just to claim you as his own and then walk away and claim somebody else on his own. Now he wants to claim you as his own, use you to claim others for his own, and do it because he is doing a mighty work in you that others just say, there's clearly God doing something in your life. And that happens when a person's knees are bent in prayer, their hearts become aligned to him, their thoughts become like his, and they begin to pray by the spirit, not for things for themselves. Think about this. Jesus knew, he knew he was going to die on the cross. He knew he was gonna die on the cross. He could see it for what it was. And yet on the night before he was to die on that cross, he prayed three times for it to not happen. But all three times he kept saying because he knew, he knew he would say, not my will, your will be done. When we pray to God regularly in this kind of spirit, then you begin to know what his will is. And it's going to change some of your prayers. We're called to bring everything to God and to pray in all kinds of prayers. That is true. But our prayers are going to become more and more informed by the spirit as we lean in on him, and incredible things will be accomplished. So as we engage God in prayer, let's do it by beginning with trust. The word has told us he is an unchanging, all knowledgeable, but compassionate and just God who desires to do amazing work in your life. Let's trust in him, not in our limited perception and perspective. And number two, when we pray, let's also include in our prayer, God, create in me a new heart. Help me see things anew. Align my heart to you. Align my mind to you as I pray. We pray out of the flesh, yes. And then we say these things and then as we begin to engage the spirit, the prayers start being like, but yet Lord, not my will. Your will be done. And lastly, we know when we're praying in the Spirit, and we're beginning to walk in alignment with His heart and mind, when what we pray most fervently is that God will get glory in what He is doing in you, around you, and through you. Now, as what we've been given in grace, let's pray. God, how can we not celebrate your character? How can we not celebrate your amazing plans and your foreknowledge that you knew that your church was gonna be how you would change the world? And we get to pray in the spirit to align ourselves with that mission. So I ask God that you would encourage people here in this room that have struggled to pray, that they will begin to pray more fervently and that they would notice that as they get to know you, they know your voice and they know when they're praying in the spirit and then they know how to pray and they know what to be praying for. And then by faith, praying the things that their hearts desire so much, that even though they know you here, that you begin to say, not my will, your will be done. So Lord, change our perspective. And give us trust in your character. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and join us in singing these words as a prayer? Lord, I come. When temptation comes my way when I cannot stand I'll fall on you Jesus you're my hope and stay when I cannot stand when I cannot stand I'll fall on you Oh Jesus you're my hope and stay Oh God, how I need You! Sing it one more time. You're my one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need You! So we'll have people in the encounter room that would be glad to pray with you. As it's said in James chapter five, verse 16, confess your sins to one another. Confession's not always about sins. Sometimes it's confessing a difficult situation you're in. Having others pray is, can be powerful and effective as it says in scripture. The key thing is, is that each of us walk out here, out of here with the opportunity to engage God directly. Do you wanna go out and continue to be blind as to what God's doing around you? and being resistant to what God wants to do in and through you? Or do you want to open up and say, God, I need to be engaging you more, and I'm going to engage more continuously about things in my life, and then watch God begin to change you, and then see what God starts doing through you? I pray it's the latter, and that's how I'm praying for you as as Paul prayed for the church, so I pray for you. Go in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen.